Good morning. I'm Peggy. Today's scripture is John chapter 18, verses 28 through 38. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's quarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. I bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Let us open our time together in a word of prayer this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? <clears throat> Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered together as saints and sinners as people of God, children of God, seeking your word this morning. Heavenly Father, I know there are people in this room who've come to hear from you, who are desperate for a word. Lord, I pray that you use me to, to bring that word. I am only uh, Marcus Doe, um, a crooked stick that you're perhaps using to draw straight lines. Heavenly Father, let your word dictate the next few minutes. Uh, I pray that a seed is planted in a heart in here who've heard the word. Heavenly Father, your word, you clear it says it cuts like a double-edged sword. Lord, I pray for correction, rebuke, teaching, and all that you have placed in my heart this week to come through in the next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. 
My name is Marcus Doe, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption, and it is always a joy to preach. If you are with us this morning and you did not come with a Bible, we'd like to give you one, uh, yours to keep. The ushers are on the side, so just slip up your hand. We will get you one, because in this church, we like to preach from the Bible. Some of y'all missed that. We like to preach from the Bible. Uh, we, we do not shy away from the difficult things. If you know, uh, uh, if you've been here a while, you know we walk through the scriptures verse by verse, uh, book by book sometimes. So we're walking through the book of John that was written shortly after Jesus passed away and rose again. I always remind you before I get going in these things that the book of James chapter 3 towards the end of the Bible says to me and to everyone who occupies this space in a service that we will be judged more strictly as teachers. So what I'm going to do, what I am doing right now in the next 20 to 30 minutes, um, I will be judged for. I will stand before the, the God who created the heavens and the earth on your behalf is saying, did you lead, did you teach, did you rebuke, did you correct, were you humble in your exposition of the word? So I take that very seriously when I study and allow the Holy Spirit to work. Um, this morning, I will spend, we're going from head to heart this morning, if you understand. Sometimes preaching goes from core to heart to head. It affects your core and it gets to your heart and it gets to your head, or sometimes preachers will start with the intellectual part and work their way down to your head, down to your heart, and down to your head, uh, down to your core, I should say. This morning, put on your thinking cast for a little bit. Don't zone out on me. <laughs> we'll start with the head, and we'll work our way down to the heart, and hopefully I'll have some application for us here in Tucson in 2022 from this passage of Scripture. I have titled this sermon, The Truth is on trial. The truth is on trial. When I was a kid, back in Africa, a barefoot kid, I loved jumping on every single thing that I saw, including people. I loved, I loved climbing trees and, and, and running the bushes, all those kinds of things. Uh, when my relatives, when I went back to Africa 20, uh, after 20 years of being absent, one of the first things they asked me was, do, you, do I still like to jump on things and people? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> um, but in that, in that jumping, I ended up breaking a lot of things around the house. And my mother would often say to me, who broke this? And as a child, you're tempted, obviously, to say, I didn't do it when you really did. And the next phrase out of her mouth, she would say, tell me the truth, because the truth shall set you free. And you and I both know the truth did not always set you free. It actually got you somewhere else. It got you punishment. Let's leave it at that, right? The truth shall set you free. In today's digital world, the world we occupy now, 2022, truth has come to be subjective. Subjective meaning Everyone has a definition of what truth is. Truth is not objective. It's not clear, black and white. 
truth has been confused in our culture today with perspectives. It has been confused with opinions. There are many avenues nowadays where our information comes from, how it is presented, and we are all left to decipher what it takes, what it means, what is true. I've heard the phrase, and you probably have as well, my truth versus your truth. I'm going to speak my truth, right? Even if my truth and your truth are complete opposites, we hold them to be true. How can that be? If I said to you that 2 plus 2 is 4, and I said that was my truth, and you said 2 plus 2 is 5, and that is your truth, someone is incorrect. When I drive, I would say that's when I, needed, I need the most sanctification in my life, when I drive. And I, I am always tempted to take shortcuts. If I, were to come to a stop, if I were to come to a stop sign, and the sign in front of me, we all drive here, and it says one way that way, and I say, well, that's not true. My truth is the one way should go that way. What will happen? Our digital society, our society now, lies are everywhere, and sometimes the lies are often very disguised, very veiled in advertising, in music, in, in people, the people we listen to, the, the followers, the people we follow on social media, our choice for news, the motivation for lies or untruth or half-truth, we would call them, sometimes are based on political power, religious influence or authority, and at the bottom of it is really economic gain or money. I don't know how many of you have been in an argument or a discussion recently and someone says to you, I read an article. I read an article used to carry some weight, didn't it? I read an article used to be, yeah, I will listen to you because you read an article. Nowadays, I can read an article, and you can read 10 articles, and we'll be, both be on the same thing, and it'll be total opposites. I read an article has lost its I read an article-ness. It, ha- it holds no weight. Today, I'm going to hopefully recap for you, if you missed the day or week that your middle school, your high school teacher, or your college professor taught the class, between, taught the class on a topic, fact and opinion. How do you tell the difference? You're lost in society right now if you don't understand fact and opinion. But I'm going to make a case this morning that truth matters. The truth matters. The pursuit of truth matters. Because the truth is what truly, as my mother says, sets us free. In 1982, there was a man named Walter Forbes who was in community college in the state of Michigan. If you've never heard of him, it's okay. Um, Walter was in a bar one winter night in Michigan, and there was a fight, and he attempted to break up this fight, and he did, but in the process of breaking up this bar fight, he was shot. Walter took months to heal from this bullet wound, and the summer after he healed, in that July, the man who shot him was actually burned in his apartment on purpose. Someone set this man's apartment complex on fire, and he died. Obviously, Walter became the prime suspect. Walter spent 37 years of his life in prison. He was released on November 20th of this year because he was convicted of that crime. Last year, someone came forward uh, to admit 
that they had not told the truth, and the truth had cost Walter his freedom for 37 years. The story was fabricated because the, the person was trying to actually gain, was involved in insurance fraud. The truth, family matters. The writer of our passage, John, makes it clear at the end of the book, as we turn our attention now to the Scriptures, uh, John makes it clear, the writer of the book that we're studying now, John says this in the end of his book. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may also live. So this is the kind of the thesis. The reason why John wrote the book of John is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in Him, you will live forever. In this particular passage, in John chapter 18, verses 28 to 38, John uses what we in literature call dramatic irony. Um, if, you, if, you, if you've been reading the book with us, you sometimes understand or see that Jesus is interacting with people in a scene, but they don't quite understand what Jesus is trying to tell them. But we as an audience now reading back, we get it, but the folks who were in the scene did not quite understand what was happening. They were speaking in contradictory terms. This is what dramatic irony is. We'll look at the story, this scene, as Jesus is arrested by the crowd and he's, he's brought to Pilate to face trial. The story we'll look at from different angles. Jesus has been arrested. We read, we read and learned that last week that he was taken, he's in chains, he's brought to Pilate to, put up, to be put on trial. One, when he's brought to Pilate that morning, the verse says in 28, it says, it was very early in the morning. Pilate is the governor of the area, right? And the, the, the Jewish leaders, the, the, the religious leaders had brought Jesus to, to Pilate that morning and said, hey, Pilate, we want you to deal with this man that we arrested last night. And Pilate is saying, let's read verse 28. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate asked them a question, but they don't answer the question. They give another, they, they, give a, they, they kind of bypass each other, right? They are, in this sense, they are, providing a theological argument when Pilate is really there to judge political confrontations or criminal confrontations. Pilate is asking him, he said, you want me to put this man to death this early in the morning over a theological argument that you guys are having? The fact is, the misunderstanding there, the irony there is, it's not a theological argument they're having, really, it's a political argument. They want Jesus dead. You want me to kill this man because he's evil? That's the charge you're bringing? The irony, they are calling Jesus evil when they are the ones wanting to put an innocent man to death. They don't have any legal charges, but they have a sentence. Is that going to fly in court? 
the leaders want, they, they have a request. They say, hey, we, we, we don't have any charges, but we would like you to kill this guy. They want Jesus' death. They want his ministry to end. But ironically, Jesus' death is what's going to propel his ministry. One commentator says they don't want to defile themselves, they say, but they were willing to lie and kill, which will defile them. They want to remain ceremoniously clean, religiously, outwardly clean, while being very sinful. Do you see the irony? You can go through the motions. All of us can go through the motions and still be sinful. How many of you here know that this morning? Religion without faith is deadly. This is what the crowd wants. Pilate, let's put him in the hot seat real quick. Why is Pilate, who is the governor, who has full authority, acquiescing to every, every whim of this, of this mob? Why is he just giving himself over? Isn't he, isn't he the one who is most powerful in the scene? Why is he so powerful and authoritative when he's asking Jesus, but he seems very powerful to the, very powerless to the demands of the crowd? Josephus, um, a first, uh, first century historian, Jewish historian, and also Philate, uh, sorry, Philo, um, a Jewish historian also, says this. He says, the Roman governor in the region, when, 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 when a Roman governor was sent to Judea, was sent around the world, when Pilate was sent to Judea, he came. This was not a desirable place for any Roman governor who, who was trying to move up in government, if you will, to be placed. So when Pilate is placed in Jerusalem, in this area, they, they, he, didn't, he didn't enjoy that area. And he tried, historically, he tried to enforce certain rules on the Jewish people, and the Jewish people did not, were, were not having it. They were rebelling against them. I'm just giving you a background so you can see why Pilate was so willing to give Jesus over. The Jewish people did not enjoy living under Roman rule. In fact, they often rebelled. Pilate tried to, <laughs> Pilate tried to <laughs> kind of put rules on them. And at one point, just before Jesus was arrested, uh, Josephus writes that the Jewish people actually had a hunger strike and surrounded Pilate's house and wouldn't let him out. For five days, they sat outside his house. He said, you cannot, you cannot impose these laws on us. Pilate called in the troops. <laughs> his story is so incredible. And he said, if you guys don't move from in front of my house, we're going to behead every single one of you. You know what the people did? They laid down and welcomed the beheading. And he had to relent. There were always riots against Pilate. The people didn't like him. He was trying to curry their favor, right? Because he wanted to, to prove to back a Rome that he could control his province. Because if you lose trust with the emperor, you lose your job, and you perhaps maybe you lose your life. This is why Pilate is so weak when the crowd says, we have no charge, but we want you to kill this guy. He's trying to gain favor with the high priest and therefore the people that he was ruling. This is why they're able to come to his house early in the morning and bring a guy who's, who they say is doing evil and you should kill him. And he actually entertains the idea. We want the death penalty. What? Pilate, the irony here, is the most powerful person, quote-unquote, standing there 
but he's actually the most powerless. Jesus seems like the most powerless person, but he's actually the most powerful. Somebody got it. So when Pilate pulls Jesus inside to ask him the questions, he wants, actually is looking for a reason so that he can let Jesus go and make peace with everybody. But Jesus, the powerless one in the scene, doesn't really give him the, one, the answers he's looking for, does he? Jesus, man, he's always up to something. Jesus doesn't plead his innocence. He doesn't say, oh, you know, Pilate, please let me offer this, right? I can help. I can, I can make your relationship better with the priests. Jesus actually expresses his deity. My kingdom is not of this world, dude. Right? You can feel Pilate's impatience and frustration. The, car, the crowd is breathing down his neck to kill this guy. I go inside and try to talk to this guy, and he's not giving me anything. Work with me here, Jesus. This leads to Pilate asking that famous question at the end of our passage. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he says, what is truth? How much money would I give if I was a betting man to hear Pilate's intonation of how he asked that question? Whether it was cynical, it was actually wanting to know more, inquisitive, or was he just dismissive? What is truth? Here's the irony. Jesus has claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate is asking Jesus what is truth when he's actually looking at truth. Jesus is in front of Pilate in chains, but he is the only one who is ultimately free from the political pressures of the emperor and from the religious leader because his kingdom is actually not of this world. He's not even in the scene. You guys are playing JV, he's trying to tell you. Excuse the sports analogy. Jesus is the one who's truly free even though he's in chains. This is dramatic irony when I say the people in the scene don't quite understand what's going on. But as we read and we look, the divine author of the scriptures through John makes this really clear. It's so beautiful. What is truth? Know the truth, Jesus says in John chapter 8, and it will set you free. The truth is on trial. Do you see the irony? The truth is actually the idea of truth and the person of truth in this are both on trial. As the American philosopher, the great American philosopher, Dwayne Johnson, also known as The Rock, would say, do you smell what The Rock is cooking? Do you smell what Jesus is cooking this morning? You guys know that I don't intend to try to be funny. It just comes. I am com I am, I'm not the most humorous person in the world. I am funny on accident. I was having lunch with a professor one time, a uh, professor, a philosophy professor, don't ask me why, uh, a man named Doug Broteis, who's a philosophy professor in Denver Seminary. And we were having lunch. Doug is one of those people that when you eat with them or you have a conversation with them, you had the lunch on Sunday. By Wednesday, you finally figure out what he was trying to tell you. <laughs> the words that he, were, he was using in his conversation with he and I were words that I'd only seen written, and I'm not sure how you pronounce them or what the verb form is, or that's how you use that word, and he used multiples of those words. We're sitting and having lunch, and he was telling me about a book that he wrote called Truth Decay, 
very clever name. Doug writes in this book, he talks about something that in our society now, this was 2010, I think, he was predicting what was going to happen through what, was, what is happening now, that truth would be so hard to decipher, decipher. He writes on our founding fathers, the founding fathers of this nation. He says, the founding fathers wrote at the beginning of his nation that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We know now the irony of that statement. I'm gonna get on your couch a little bit, is that okay? Yeah. All right. We now know that most of the founding fathers didn't actually believe that all men were created equal because most of them held humans as property, right? Most of them had slaves and, 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 and wrote whether it was an ideal that we're trying to express to get to or this is what they believed, they wrote that all men were created equal. Hear me out this morning, I'm not throwing rocks at the founding fathers from my vantage point. Here what I'm, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Here's what I'm trying to get to this morning. I'm trying to get you to answer a question in your mind. And the question is this. What dramatic ironies are you living? What inconsistencies are in your life? What two-sided stories are you telling by your behavior and your beliefs? Like the crowd that morning, they were religious, but they were also unclean. They didn't want to do certain things, but they were doing them. What's not aligning? What is the unrepentant thing in your life that you know you should be working on and bringing to the Lord that you're not doing? What are you missing? I always marvel at people who criticize folks from the past. The question is, do you know what we're doing now that 200 years from now will not look good? Am I on your couch yet? I can give you specific examples, but I won't go there this morning. This is like my hobby horse. What, what, are you, what, what dramatic ironies are we living now? But we can see, with hindsight is 20-20, we can see people in the past say, oh, man, they did that, they did this. What are we doing now? Here's what I think our society is looking for in truth. We are looking for perfect people but we will never find them. There was only one perfect person. Our society now is crying for that. We're wanting to rewrite history when we're living dramatic ironies now. Are you with me? The fact that we may be living a life contrary to what we claim to believe, ladies and gentlemen, should bring us to our knees every single day. It should humble you at the fact that you are living a life that perhaps is not as clean as you think. It should bring you to your knees every morning to thank God for his mercy, to thank God for his forgiveness, to thank God for his grace, and to have grace with those you interact with every day. Can I get an amen? If you came this morning looking for Jesus, you came to the right place because he is on trial this morning. Jesus, in this scene, is the only person who actually quite understands what's actually happening. 
He seems like the victim, the innocent victim, but in fact, he is the victor. He is the one who will win in the end. He has, it seems like he has no control here. His life is going to be lost, but he has all the control. The truth, ladies and gentlemen, is not an idea, but a person. It's a person that is personified in Jesus, if that, if that, if that is English and that works. He is the king that was predicted. He is a suffering servant who was prophesied. He is the priest who was anticipated. He is the son of God who came down so that he would die for us. Somebody's got it, man. Pilate thought he was in control of the situation. He was in control of Jesus' destiny. And he is the judge. He was the one who held the keys to Jesus' freedom. But in fact, he is the one who's actually on trial. At the end of this scene, at the end of this scene, it seems like Jesus is doomed. That the lies that have been put on him will prevail, but the truth will ultimately win. Here's the irony of all ironies today. Jesus, the innocent Son of God, on trial before a Roman governor without an advocate, convicted based on lies, will one day accompany you and I, guilty, at, guilty of sin, before the ultimate judge. He will be our advocate. He will stand in our place before the all-powerful God. He will take on our convictions and our punishment. In fact, he already has. Jesus is the advocate who steps in for our, for our sins. Have you ever watched TV? I used to be really into <laughs> these Law and Order and those kind of shows where people would go on trial and things like that. Um, and at some point, <laughs> believe it or not, I had to go to court one time when I was 17 years old. We can talk about that over coffee. I'd be glad to explain that. Actually, it wasn't my fault. I know everybody says that, but it's true. <laughs> When you get to court, your lawyer stands beside you, and the judge is up front, and the charges are read, and the trial goes on. Whether you are guilty or innocent, your lawyer goes home. Somebody got it up there. Whether the end of the trial, whatever happens, the lawyer can only do so much. And at the end, if you are guilty, they put the handcuffs on you and they take you away and your lawyer goes on and goes to the next case. The French word for lawyer is avocat, meaning advocate. Jesus is our advocate who, when we face the Father, he will not only stand beside us, but he won't go home. He will take our place. Somebody heard it. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the results of our sin, the wages of our sin is death and eternity separated from God. But in Christ Jesus Christ, we have an advocate who laid his life so that we may live. That's the truth. And that will set you free. Do you see the irony? That's who the truth is. That's what the truth does. The truth is more than an idea, more than a philosophical conundrum. It is a person to be pursued. It's a relationship to have. It's not found intellectually, folks. It's not found on CNN or Fox News. It's found in a relationship. The truth sets us free. I'm going to give you a few application points, and then I will, sit, I will take my seat. What does this mean for us today in Tucson, Arizona in 2022? 
What, is, what, what effect would dramatic irony in this story have to say for you and me? What, what can I take home, if you will? What can we take home? The dramatic irony, the misunderstanding, the story, the trial of a man a thousand years ago, how does that apply to my life today? Let's say you're a stay-at-home mom living in Midtown. You're retired living on the east side. You're a grad student living off campus among college students. How does this story affect you? Maybe you're working at Davis Moffin. Maybe you're employed. You're anxious about a health issue. How does that connect to you this morning? I want to tell you specifically, here's how it connects. The truth is a person. As, as, as the Americans often say, <laughs> you can hang your hat on this. Idiomatic expression that I quite, I, I understand, but I don't really understand, <laughs> right? You can hang your hat on this one. You can rest assured on this. The same Jesus that stood on trial in front of Pilate is the same Jesus that rose and is the same Jesus that who saves us. He is the person of truth. He is the only one that can set you free from life's highest highs and the lowest lows. Here's my specific ask this morning. I'm really going to get on your couch now. Here we go. Lent is coming. In the Christian calendar, you know this, um, March 5th, and from March 5th this year up to April 14th is 40 days. On the church calendar, usually people would give up something, right, in order to get closer to God. You with me? Can I go there? I am. If you have your iPhone, go ahead and pull them out this morning. I don't know what it is for Android. Pull out your iPhones. It's okay. It's a church. Pull them out. Pull out your phones. This is the application point I want to get to you. I want you to turn on your phones in church. Go to your settings. You know where I'm going with this? There's a little line there when you go to your setting that says screen time. Oh, I'm on your couch. Go to settings, go to screen time, and look at that number, folks. The time that you spend on your phone every day. If that number right now, you don't have to show it to your neighbor or nothing, I'm not going to ask that. If that number is over six or seven or eight or nine, for goodness sakes, start thinking about Lent and decreasing that time. I'm not sure how you would do it. If you want to take this away further, you can click on it, and you can see the apps that you spend time on. That's where lies come in, in our culture, right? That's where the truth gets muttered. It's in those apps. I don't know what the key app that you use all the time, but you know what it is. If you're going to abstain from something for Lent, let it be one of those things. Your digital life is actually pouring lies into your life, and you're being discipled by the amount of time that you're spending on your device. You with me? Lent is coming. Now you say, if I, if I get back those four hours that I spent on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, maybe the Bible app, hmm. <laughs> I, I, I'm real, folks. You know this, right? Let's make a change. One way to pursue truth, family, is to fill your mind with it. 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In order for you to silence the opinions, the perspectives, the lies out in our culture, you have to stop them from coming in. I want you to replace the hours that you spend. Probably won't be the same. It won't be equal. But pick up the Bible and read the Gospels. Read about Jesus. You will find truth. You will find guidance. For 40 days, beginning March 5th, let's start doing that. Pursuing truth, pursuing Jesus in a real, tangible way. I want to promise you this morning, you will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. Because Jesus is the truth, is the way, is the life. Would you bow your heads? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love and your grace and your truth. Heavenly Father, I pray that, Lord, as Jesus sets us free, the Bible says we are free indeed. There is someone here who needs to be set free from the lies and the perspectives and, and everything else that fills our mind and our society. Would you set us free this morning? Heavenly Father, would, we, would you guide us as we, as, we, as we embark to pursue you, O Lord, in a whole different way. Lord, we love you. We want to know you. We want to be closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.